Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Your Project Shepherd Construction Podcast. My name is Curtis Lawson with Shepherd Construction Advisors, and along with my industry expert friends, I am here to guide you through these four key components of a successful project, which are demonstrated by this simple drawing of a house. The foundation is proper planning. The left wall is your team, the right wall is communication, and the roof is proper execution. Have all four of these components in place and your project will succeed. Whether you're building or remodeling a custom home, or if you're an architect or designer looking for inspiration, or maybe you're just interested in building science and high-performance construction, you're in the right place. Please help us further our mission here by tapping that follow or subscribe button, push that notification bell, so that you know when our new episodes drop every week. And now, let's get to today's interview. Welcome to this episode of the Your Project Shepherd podcast. Um, I am joined today by Megan Carson with Guided Well. Uh, Megan is a mold consultant in Norwalk, Connecticut, and we connected uh, pretty recently on Instagram. Uh, she posts a lot of good information, and I'm not sure if uh, you saw one of mine or I saw a post of yours, but we we, we can't, um, connected on Instagram and have been messaging, and uh, this is a topic I thought would be a, a great thing for our listeners to hear. So. Uh, Megan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the about what Guided Well does and kind of your history and how you got into this and 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 what it is exactly that you do? Yeah, so I am a IEP or um, indoor environmental professional. Um, I am a certified mold inspector, and I offer consulting services through Guided Well, my company, um, virtually and in person. Um, so I just want to make that clear too. I'm, I'm located in Norwalk, but I work with people, you know, throughout the U S and I've even worked um, with some international clients as well. Um, and really what I do, or I should say my client base, um, predominantly is, is people who have ongoing issues in the home. Um, they've usually had multiple people in the home, whether that's mold inspectors or general home inspectors or other, um, tradesmen in, um, and they're still having either recurrent health issues or just problems with the performance of their home um, and determining what and why those are. So um, I do that through uh, a questionnaire. We start with a questionnaire um, that's pretty extensive and asks a lot of questions on the history of the home, um, how it's performing, uh, the health of the occupants in it. And um, we kind of go from there with um, sessions uh, going deeper into what I identify through the questionnaires. Um, I also go over any uh, inspection reporting or previous remediation uh, scopes or reporting that they've had um, and really anything pertaining to the home. Um, I, I want to see, I want to look over. Um, usually it also includes um, either a full walkthrough virtually of the home or I'm, I love to go in person um, to really uh, thoroughly see what's going on. Um, and then I help them determine the, the path forward um, and where we go from here. Um, sometimes it's a difficult conversation, you know, um, but ultimately the people generally who find me are really, really desperate for answers um, in terms of why they're not feeling well or their house is having repetitive issues that they thought they fixed. So if someone's had a, several different inspectors out, um... You know, wh why can't all of these other people find these issues? You know, what what is it that these people miss? Gosh. Um, Some common things they miss. Sure. So, I mean, just like um, medicine might be disjointed, right? We have our PCP, we have our orthopedist, we have all of these parceled out um, people who are giving their opinions on very specific things. Um, so like an HVAC technician, for instance, um, a plumber, um, we have all of these people kind of coming into our home, but often they're not kind of thinking as the home, um, as this per, per one performing micro environment. Um, so it's very disjointed, um, I find. And even with mold inspection, just like I know you've had some great um, general home inspectors on, um, you get what you pay for and not all mold inspectors are created equal. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them think that it's sufficient enough to do air samples in three rooms of a house, and that's enough to diagnose the problem. Unfortunately, that's just not true. Um, and 
people, again, who generally find me have found that out the hard way. They've had sampling done, they've had testing done, and every time it's kind of coming back negative, but their health provider or their gut and intuition is kind of guiding them and telling them that mold or a microbial issue in the home is the root cause of kind of their symptomatology. Um, but they have this data that says otherwise. Um, so kind of they get to this point where they're like, what do we do? You know, if this isn't it, what is? Um, but then they're also being educated that certain practices that mold inspectors specifically perform might not be sufficient to, again, diagnose the problems going on. So, um, you know, often I see missed things on the exterior. So like envelope issues are huge and they're really hard to diagnose um, because they're in wall cavities, um, you know, and we can get into this later, but I, I don't think that people understand that all materials of our home have a life, um, which includes the house wrap or water resistant barrier, um, our windows, you know, all of this stuff um, that we often take for granted that can, can contribute to these issues and often does, especially in these issues that are really hard to find and aren't necessarily being found by somebody who's going into the home and looking at just the finished surfaces. Yeah. Yeah. Those items have a life and, and then they also re require maintenance too. So if they're not, not maintaining some of the, some of those openings, you know, th there's all kinds of potential entry points for, for water, air, all those things that contribute, right? Absolutely. So what, uh, what other tests, you know, you mentioned that the mold inspectors typically just do air samples in two or three spaces in the house. Um, what other tests are available that, that you utilize? So that would be like a standard mold inspection. That would be what I would consider somebody goes on Google and types in mold inspector and that's what they're getting. Um, right. In my opinion and in my training, a thorough mold inspection is far, far and above um, beyond just coming into the house and taking air samples. Um, it should start with a thorough history of the home. You know, any historical water damage information is really important for a mold inspector to know. Um, especially if materials have been replaced. So we're not seeing any visual signs of, you know, what may have happened two, five or 10 years ago, um, but may not have been dried out correctly or taken care of correctly. Um, so that's that's huge. Doing a uh, an investigation, uh, a verbal investigation of the home, followed by a full 360 exterior um, look. I love when inspectors are willing to get on the roof and um, look at the penetrations up there too, because they're super important. Obviously we can see certain things from attic spaces, um, depending on accessibility though, um, you know, having both an attic view and a roof view might be really helpful. Um, but checking out, uh, you know, all the siding, if it has good integrity, um, if the gutters are blocked, if, you know, the softening looks obscured, um, what the grading and sloping is, um, how close vegetation is to the property. Um, and a big one is uh, where sprinklers are located. And if they're mm -hmm. going into or they're pointed towards your cladding, um, which is huge. Yep. Um, so and then comes the interior um, and then doing a full 360 all spaces, which it includes living spaces, but is also basements, crawl spaces, attics. Um, the entirety of your home should be inspected. Um, Inside visually. the cabinets. Exactly. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Every every square inch um, that is reasonably accessible should be looked through. Um, and then your mold inspector um, should determine what sampling is appropriate. Now, I'm not 100% opposed to air samples. I just don't think that they should be the only um, validation metric we use. Um, right. They do have some significance. I definitely like to see an outdoor sample that helps us kind of determine on interior samples um, what's coming potentially from the exterior to the interior. Yeah. Um, farms are a big one. Um, if you live near or on a working farm, mold results can be hugely skewed. Um, so if you're not taking that outdoor sample to see what's in the outdoor environment, you could, you know, again, potentially think or determine you have a massive problem and we're just getting transference. So right. air samples are part of the investigation, but then anything that, um, for instance, like I said, with historical water damage, um, if the homeowner says to us, for instance, that 
they just dried drywall out, which in my opinion, drywall cannot be dried out. It needs to be removed um, if it's been wet um, and thoroughly wet. Um, that might be a place where I wanna take a cavity sample. So that's an air sample taken in a cavity. Um, and it's same thing, it just draws the air out from that cavity space. Um, now air samples are interesting um, and, and this is important to get into too. Air samples are genus species, or uh, excuse me, genus level tests. So it's gonna tell you whether it's Aspergillus, Aspergillus penicillium, Stachybotrys, but it's not gonna go into Aspergillus ochratius or Aspergillus penicilloides, for instance, that's the species level. So um, I like doing a litany of tests that include both. Um, so we're not only seeing the genus, but we're also seeing species levels. Um, so getting back to it, um, air samples, cavity samples, if they're warranted, um, tape lift samples, um, so surface samples, tape lift samples, um, and swab samples, especially if we're seeing overt mold or a, a colony, um, to kind of see what that is, um, is helpful and often important, or things that uh, we think look potentially even like dust, or people will say, oh, that's just dirt. Um, I cannot tell you how many samples I've gotten back where uh, it's a lot more than dust and dirt. Um, so the last component could be an ERMI, um, which is E-R-M-I, and it stands for Environmental Relative Moldiness Index. Um, it's a Swiffer cloth that collects dust. Um, so Dust is the vehicle in which mold really travels through our environment, um, unless there's there's a huge concentration of spores and there's a huge kind of um, colony that's in a uh, space that's not being obscured. Um, so that's why we collect the dust. Um, and that is a PCR test. So that's a DNA test. It's, it's not a test that's relying on microscopy um, by a microbiologist, which the other tests are. Um, mm. And that's why those are genus-based tests, um, because we're identifying them visually under a microscope um, and then doing calculations on counts. Um, the ERMI test is doing uh, PCR tests on the whatever species we're finding and that's showing up in the dust. So it's 36 different species, 26 species that are heavily correlated to indoor water damage molds, um, and then the rest that are predominantly outdoor molds. And what's showing up um, tells us different things. So just briefly about the ERMI, um, the EPA created it, uh, and they unfortunately largely discredited discredited it in the inspection community. Um, there's a lot of theories as to why, but um, generally speaking, I I think it's it's reasonable to believe that they started getting um, some lawsuits due to this metric that the EPA created, um, quantifying the amount of mold in a space saying um, and correlating with it, correlating it with a score. So that's part of the ERMI too. Um, it gives you a score um, and different zones, if you will, of um, the moldiness index. Um, there are big problems though, unfortunately, with the algorithm of, of how we get the score. So that's the last thing I look at on an ERMI. I'm looking at what species are showing up and in what concentrations. And again, that tells me a lot about if we potentially have a rampant humidity issue. Um, if there is, if it is looking like there are water damage and ongoing active water damage sources, um, or there's just uh, sometimes it's indicative of HVACs and HVAC contamination. Um, so a lot can be extrapolated from that. But getting back to the main question, a full comprehensive um, testing approach is what I recommend and what I like to see in mold inspections and that will yield the best results to really find out what's going on. I imagine if you have your house thoroughly cleaned or if you clean your house personally on a regular basis, wipe down all the surfaces really good, then like the ERMI test may not be as effective because all those surfaces are getting wiped off all the time, right? Do you find nooks and crannies where things are not being cleaned as well or what, what do you do? So the administration of the test, um, it could be done. So this is interesting because it can be a consumer test so you can order it yourself or you can have it done um, in the scope of a mold inspection um, meaning the, you know the inspector is going to do it for you um, if if I have clients doing it themselves I do have specific recommendations so you're absolutely right in terms of the data we get from um, something like a dust sample 
Um, often it can be a mix of historic dust and new dust, depending on the circumstance, um, depends on what I might recommend clients to do. So if we're looking for more current dust um, and, and kind of really wanna see what's going on right now, I'll have clients do a full, almost um, to the level of fine particulate cleaning. So that's using microfiber cloths, remove um, HEPA vacuuming, as, removing as much particulate as possible, and then allowing anywhere from two to four weeks for dust to accrue. So you would then cut down your cleaning by about 50% um, to allow that. Um, and then that can give us good insight into what's circulating right now, as opposed to wiping the top of, for instance, a hung cabinet that we've never dusted um, that sample could be as old as your home. If it's under my my daughter's bed or something like that, that's never been cleaned for sure. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Give teenagers um, rooms, right? So one thing that I that I like to tell people too is like the 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 first and easiest test that you can do is just the sm the smell test. Like if it if it smells musty, it you probably have an issue, right? Um, Excellent point. And I, I have mean, a that, kind of a like saying. The, yeah, go ahead. if it's if you smell it, it's there, find out where. Yeah. And I mean, that's per EPA. Right. They say that is a musty smell is indicative of an active problem. And that musty smell is mold that has an active water source and is growing because what we smell is actually um, called MVOCs or microbial VOCs that they're off gassing in their digestion of organic material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and so he, here in Houston, and I'm sure it's it's probably similar in your area too. Um, you know, there's certain times of year, like like right now, and here in Houston, uh, in the summer, our AC our AC systems are running all the time, and especially in older homes that have really hot attics, um, and then they have a metal AC register on the ceiling inside their space that's really cold. Um, that that ring around that AC register stays moist all the time mm -hmm. and so a lot of these homes around here will always smell musty in the summer and that's because that's a great place that's going to harbor mold growth is right around all those ac registers in the house and absolutely maybe and there's, the there's drywall there's insulation um that just is keeping and retaining that moisture um so totally i see it commonly seasonally where we have upticks specifically in symptoms for people and it's usually when the AC is turned on or when the heat is turned on um, mm -hmm. for similar, you know, situations. Yeah. If, if you peel off your, or not peel off, if you take the screws out and drop your AC grill out of the ceiling, it's very common to see a black ring around the inside of that. And some of that may be dust, but definitely some of that's going to be mold, mildew, right? Absolutely. Um, and the same thing with, um, with light switches. Um, if you have a, a house that's, um, that has some some um, pathways for air filtration and that's coming into the wall cavity it's going to find the path of least resistance and often that is around a electrical receptacle or a switch mm -hmm. and so the the switch plate cover will often have a ring of mold around it or on the back side of it where that that air is passing through the wall it's finding its way through that switch or that or that plug so that's a great indication as well absolutely um and we can get into HVACs now or later, um, but they're a big issue in my business, um, whether they're primary or secondary sources. Yeah, let's talk about that now. So what are your what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I believe Toner kind of touched on this and he was like, you know, ACs are, are not the problem, but um, unfortunately, I disagree. <laughs> okay. I, I see them um, commonly being issues for various reasons, right? Number one, uh, we usually put HVACs in non-conditioned spaces. Um, and just like you were talking about in terms of condensation, whether that's in a garage space, a basement space, or an attic space, we're having huge temperature differentials and swings um, on a usually metal ducting that's condensable, um, whether we're using heat or cooling, depending on the season. Um, so that's huge. Um, I, I can't stress enough how I wish it were not common practice to to put these these units in these types of spaces um, because it just becomes it can become so problematic. Um, 
And then additionally, in cold climates, I've seen, I see commonly humidifiers. Um, so, you know, the one thing we're trying to avoid vapor um, in our duct, we're, we're putting in there. Um, and that becomes a, a massive issue, um, if not immediately, certainly over time. Um, and then I'm seeing a lot, unfortunately, uh, with ERVs or fresh air intakes um, that are, especially in hot, humid climates that aren't uh, thoughtfully installed or are installed with the intention of being dehumidification devices, which they're not. No, they're not. And I, I think the toner would agree with you on the, um, on the AC stuff, actually, you know, his, his issues not and my issues, not really with the actual, um, you know, we don't believe that it's always, uh, not, or this, I'm sorry, I'll back up. We don't believe that it's never the problem. Um, it's, it's the installation, it's the use of it. It's sure. how it's installed. Right. So totally agree that, uh, when that, when that unit is in a hot, humid attic, uh, or in the winter and you get a furnace in a, in a cold basement. Um, mm -hmm. but we definitely see this all the, in fact, Toner and I were in a house last week and we went in the attic and the top of the AC plenum was just covered in, in mold because it, yeah. that it, it was, it was, it was so cold and the attic was so hot and the water was just condensing right there. Uh, and it was, all, it was also rusting out as well. So, um, you know, rust is another great signifier, right? Because it signifies yeah. water. Um, yeah. So getting those things out of those spaces and getting them into condition spaces, which is what we're doing now on new construction. I, I think the struggle is uh, on um, on older homes that we're seeing a lot mm -hmm. of these issues or on homes that were built kind of before these changes have taken place where we're doing more spray foam, we're doing more um, you know, non-ventilated attics and things like that, or more sealed, sealed attic uh, enclosures. Um, sure. So just so, briefly, some other things I see specifically in newer homes is that, and more specifically in like track builds where they are not bringing exterior cooling or dehumidification, they're turning on the system um, at the end of their finish of the home after it's been dried in a yeah. ton of drywall, sawdust. Um, and we didn't get into this, but, you know, what allows mold to grow? Um, number one is a spore needs to be present, right? So by the definition of how we um, we build homes from open to close, our homes are already inoculated with some amount of spore, right? Um, beyond that, we need an organic material, so a food source for it, and then water, which can be, or a moisture source, I should say, because that can be anything from high, high sustained humidity to leaks, overt bulk water, like floods or condensation. Um, so, when we think about the build process of the system kind of getting all this contamination sucked in, they're probably kind of turning it on and off when they're in and out of the building, right, to keep the workers comfortable. Um, we're also getting these huge temperature swings with organic material in an enclosed space, and it's just a recipe for disaster, unfortunately. Yeah. Our, I mean, our our standard procedure, and this is in Toner's spec sheets that he sends out for the for the builders that he works with, are as soon as the house gets dried in to get some dehumidification going on in the house, some portable dehumidification, but then also turn on a temporary AC system that's going to run 24-7 until the final AC system gets turned on. That's so huge. we're, uh, you know, it's it's keeping the workers more productive, which is great, which means your job's going to go faster, but it's also going to help dry your house out, um, and it's also going to help prevent mold growth and by by not using your ultimately you know final ac system um we're not going to suck all that construction debris into the system by running it too early so um you know and, and this is something that i used to do i admit um but you know we used to turn on the kind of the final house ac system as soon as we could and just change the filters out on, mm -hmm. on a regular basis um but there's still a lot that makes it past those filters uh, it's I would say it's better than nothing, but it's uh, it's not as good as having a completely separate temporary AC system that's going to help dry, dry the structure out and keep it comfortable. For sure, for sure. And I, I love that that, I, I hope that becomes standard practice um, because I, I can't tell you how many um, new builds I see. And I mean, I see a lot of other issues, but um, specifically just uh, damage due to this debris, right? So 
outside of that, um, and we can get into this too, is would be the maintenance of these systems like you touched on. And, you know, even people not changing their filters or not knowing to change their air filters is huge, right? Um, not having their HVAC service, not having their condenser lines flushed, um, not looking into that blower motor to see if it's accumulated a ton of dust, which raises the chances for mold um, and mold being spread throughout your system. Uh, we kind of uh, liken the HVAC system to the lungs of the home. You know, if that's not healthy, it's really hard to have a, a healthy house. And all this stuff has side benefits too. It's not just the mold and in the, in, in the healthy house. You know, if you're if your uh, system is full of dust and you get to turn your furnace on in the winter, that's a fire hazard, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, there, there's other benefits to this stuff other than just being health, uh, healthy. It's it's just some some common sense stuff that you should be doing for your home. It's amazing how many houses that I go into where they haven't changed that air filter in a year, and it's so full. It's just struggling. You know, the, the system is struggling to suck even air suck in. Air in. Yeah, and the first thing I, I do is I walk in there and pull that filter out and I, I just set it aside and just tell them, hey, I'm, I'm putting this aside right now so you don't reinstall it and you go right. change it today, right? Yeah, um, huge, it's, huge. It's unbelievable how nasty air filters are, are allowed to, to get. For sure. I mean, just like with, I think, I think every home should have a maintenance cadence, um, but that's a big one um, and a great way, um, relatively low cost to kind of, protect your system and like you said get the benefit get the benefit of better performance of the system it's amazing how how many of these topics really all tie together you know i've i've had episodes where we have home maintenance people on talking about the importance of maintaining the caulking and yeah. the, the the siding and the sprinkler heads you know maintained away from i mean like it's all the same stuff that you're talking about how that affects the home's health and your health and mold but it also affects so many different things, you know, the, the warranty on the house, the, you know, the longevity, the materials, just, I mean, it, it, it's all tied together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And ultimately we all want to enjoy our homes. I think, and I don't mean to kind of go into a tangent on this, but I think, I don't know about you, but I remember my grandparents, you know, the weekends were kind of for house maintenance, right? My grandfather was up on a ladder on the roof, making sure the shingles were good, um, taking leaves out of the gutters. And now um, I, I'm not sure where we lost that conference um, of that generational care of our homes and being good shepherds and good caretakers of our homes, especially with the way we're turning over homes, right? Like home ownership anywhere from two to eight years, and then we're moving on. Um, just so much of what we do in terms of the maintenance has great ripple effects on all of these areas we talked about, but for the next homeowner as well. Um, in the preservation um, and health of the home. We've talked about talked about that issue a lot. And, and I think a lot of it is just the convenience society that we live in, um, where we we expect somebody else to do a lot of these things for us. Um, or we're we're willing just to kind of put it off and put it off and let it be somebody else's problem. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's like our you know, our our grandparents used to get out and change their own oil on the car and Right. You know, do all the home maintenance, the car maintenance, all this stuff every weekend. And now we're, and part of it's just busyness too, because like so many families are out running to baseball games and uh, uh, gymnastics and all this other stuff on the weekends. And they just don't spend the time to do the things in the home that they used to do. And I'm, I'm not opposed to outsourcing as long as you outsource, right? Um, but right. usually somebody has to be there to receive the tech, um, which still we don't want to do you know it's like scheduling these things even if we're well-intentioned to get it done it's like oh well somebody has to be at the house for two to four hours while we receive this person and while they're doing the work and um I just can't tell you how much especially in my realm that it's worth it um and how much it pays off um for not only the health of the home but the health of the occupants um and the longevity of the home and what we're passing on I want to Change, change gears a little bit and talk about mold sensitivities and health issues that are related to that. And am I right in saying that some people are just more susceptible or more sensitive to dealing with mold issues? And oftentimes that's very young people, very old people, people with compromised immune systems. Um, you know, but at some point, all of us are going to fall in that category or, or we're going to have somebody in our home that falls into that category, whether it's our kids or our parents or, or us personally as we age. 
Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm happy you added in that last part because even in you know inspection school, we're we're taught that any you know um, high amount of mold can impact the health of even the most robust. Okay, so yes, there definitely are people who are more sensitive, um, whether that's the immunocompromised. Um, or children and women, especially, they they tend to be preferentially um, kind of the canaries, if you will, or the first responders to environmental uh, toxicants and environmental exposures, and specifically mold and mycotoxins. Um, but really, again, I, I just want to hit home that anyone can be infected, or not infected, but affected by it. Um, and there are various reasons why. Um, and mold is partially so insidious because it often happens little by little um, and over time and we assign it to getting older having young children or being stressed um, and we just kind of allow 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 this low level sense of not feeling well um, getting more and more symptoms um, whether that's over the course of a few months or a few years um, and don't connect it to our home environment um, mm. And I think specifically 2020 was kind of a turning point because people were stuck in their homes. They were not able to leave. So we, as clinicians and as inspectors, consultants, saw um, a huge intake or, uh, uptick of people dealing with issues that we decided were likely mold and then were confirmed with testing. Um, and I think that that's why mold awareness is kind of growing. Um, so in a way that's been helpful, but, um, again, anyone can be affected by it. Um, and there are a few reasons why I want to go into mold specifically. So we have three types. So we have allergenic molds, toxigenic molds, and pathogenic molds. So allergenic molds are exactly what you would think. They are the, the molds that, um, typically produce allergenic like symptoms, um, uh, itchy eyes, runny nose sinusitis, um, things like that. Um, and then we have toxigenic molds. Those are molds that are capable of producing mycotoxins. Uh, and mycotoxins are defensive chemicals produced by molds, generally to protect their territory. Um, and we're, if mycotoxins are in the picture, um, the, anyone can be affected. And, and that's really important to know. You know, spore is different from mycotoxins and this byproduct that we're talking about. We can get into that in a little bit, but then the third mold um, category would be pathogenic. And those molds can act um, and infect. They can cause disease um, and infection in hosts. Uh, so aspergillosis would be one. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of that. It's from, uh, it's a kind of a lung infection um, produced by the species uh, or the genus aspergillus. Um the one that we had that we had the big scare about years ago was what was just called black mold. That term gets thrown around a lot. Um, where did that term come from? And is that I assume that refers to a very specific type of mold, right? Great question. Yes. And I talk about this often. Um, most people assume that the color of the mold dictates its um, ability to harm us. It, that's unfortunately also not true. Most people assume that if it's black mold, it's black mold. And when we, we say black mold, we're referring to stachybotrys. Um, so that kind of, it, it actually started in about the 1700s and it was um, in a horse barn um, and all the horses were dying and they couldn't figure out why. And it was ultimately um, correlated with the hay and what was growing on the hay was stachybotrys um, and stachybotrys is a toxigenic mold, okay? It produces really nasty mycotoxins called trichothezines. Um, these mycotoxins have a variety of health and organ system effects. Um, so stachybotrys and toxic black mold is definitely one um, that you wanna be on the lookout for and don't want in your indoor environment, but it's not the only one. Um, many other molds have the ability to produce mycotoxins, um, though they might not be as uh, extreme in their uh, immediate ability to harm, they can be just as harmful. Um, hepatotoxic, nephrotoxic, which is kidney genotoxic, so affecting our genes. Um, and the data's out there. You know, we have a ton of studies, not only uh, through animal husbandry, but on, on humans um, and the effects that these metabolites have in our bodies. So um, toxic black mold, stachybotrys, 
is again something you absolutely should be concerned about if it's confirmed to be in your indoor environment but there are many many others um, and they come in all different colors and, and there's other molds that are black in color so just because exactly. it's, just because it's black doesn't mean it's stachybotrys right so. exactly and you can't make that determination even as a mold inspector i can't definitively ever tell you that's aspergillus or that's trichoderma yeah, it has to go to a lab. It has to be tested um, to, to tell us. So yeah, yeah, I, I've heard numerous builders over the years say, "Oh, that's just the pink one. It's okay. Don't worry about that one. We'll just wipe it off." You know, <laughs> that's that's that that's the old school mentality of, "Oh, we're we're only worried about the black ones." Exactly, and unfortunately, that is such a that that's part of the misconception, right? That again, I I and others in this space are trying to. Um, Kind of combat by saying you know just because it's black doesn't necessarily mean it's toxic but also just because it's another color doesn't mean it's not toxic um and we really need the only way to determine that is with testing yeah. do you get into any other uh, aside from mold do you get into into dealing with any, any other um chemical sensitivities and determining um the causes of other health issues from you know, off-gassing products or things like that? Absolutely. That's certainly part of my screen um, because sometimes, uh, like, it, especially in new homes uh, that weren't necessarily built with um, sensitive individuals in mind or, like, from a health-based perspective, have a ton of VOCs, um, and that can look very similar in presentation to um, a mold toxicity or a mold illness presentation. So, yes, um, another big one would be natural gas. Um, you know, natural gas leak can cause a host of low-lying um, issues that, just like with mold, we are kind of ascribing away to various things, right? Um, and has a lot of crossover with symptoms of mold exposure. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. it's one, sometimes it's both. Um, but getting into spaces where you can see, you know, is the flu collar attached? Um, you know, is it open? Um, I can't recommend it enough uh, just to, to make sure that's certainly part of investigating for a healthy home. Another big one I see is actually carbon dioxide now, especially with airtight homes um, that are not having adequate air exchanges um, and didn't maybe have a mechanical engineer design their system, uh, which is allowed in some places. So um, in newer homes, especially more and more, I'm asking for clients to buy a carbon dioxide meter. Um, I like the smart things meter to get readings on that because that absolutely can either be um, present with a mold issue or it can be the highest presenting issue um, outside or excluding a mold issue. Yeah. We're, you know, we're advocating moving to all electric homes right now. Um, and, and it, it's really a struggle here because we have such a big presence in, in the oil and gas industry here in Houston, but, um, we've built quite a few all electric homes and with the, uh, the way that the induction cooktop technology has really changed over the last few years, the, those products have gotten really good. So that was kind of the last bastion of people can't let go of that gas range. They've got to have the gas range. So now that the induction ranges are, are quite good. Um, it's an easier sell, but um, yeah, ha having natural gas products in a tightly built house um, is, is is a dangerous thing. And there's a lot of ways those things can be built wrong that are going to cause problems. Um, and especially uh, if you're not maintaining them, right? Like right. most people, and this is kind of what I educate on too, you know, get in your attics, get in your basements. You know, a lot of people, I, I have an, my questionnaire, you know, when was the last time you were in your attic and mm -hmm. do you see any signs of water damage? And it's, it's shocking, you know, to, to see the, the durations that people put. Oh, I don't think anyone's been there for two years or right. longer, um, or since we bought the house. And, um, you know, we, I think we just need to raise the awareness, um, about how important it is for us as homeowners. Obviously, like I'm, I'm fully in support of bringing in professionals um, to help us, especially diagnose and determine things that we might not have the knowledge base in, but to be familiar with our homes because um, there's so much that we can catch um, 
again, that we might need to bring a tech in for, but that we can catch quickly before we get a gas leak that's, you know, low level for years or a water leak that we just didn't see because we didn't go in that area of our home. And opening cabinets in areas, or so, so let's say you have a guest bathroom that doesn't use very often, just going in there and opening the cabinet, opening the cabinet every once in a while and checking out the sink underneath. Uh, we we had a, a client, in fact, we just finished remodeling their upstairs bathroom from this, but they had a guest, they're an older couple and they have an upstairs guest bathroom that never gets used. And they went up there one day and they, they, they noticed the cabinet was swollen up and they opened it up mm -hmm. and the cabinet was full of mold. Well, there was an AC drain that was tied in there and the AC drain was was backing up. And so we, we had to rip the bathroom apart and, and remediate all that. So um, if they hadn't gone upstairs for some reason to see that bathroom, that could have gone on like that for a few more months and it would have been even worse. Sure. So it works smarter, not harder. I love water sensors. Um, they're really a low investment, um, high yield, high reward product that you can, um, you know, they're about $10 each. I like um, a specific brand, um, but putting them under high water potential um, areas is just such an easy way to be alerted if you, for instance, aren't going to these areas um, that you have a, a water problem um, and they're high decibel. They're usually really good at picking up even like low level amounts of water. Um, so that's just an easy way if, for instance, you know, you, you don't want to go to these places or you don't go to these places often to have an extra layer of protection. Yep. We touched on this a while ago, but if, if someone's buying a house or if they're building a, a, a new house or, or doing major remodeling, um, what are some easy visual checks that they can be doing during construction or before they buy the home? Um, you know some easy perimeter checks or actually both interior and, and exterior. What are, what are what some things that you recommend looking for? So they're kind of two separate categories for me, building or buying a home that's in the process of being built, right? Because some people go into right. contract when a builder has already started building. Um, for, for that specifically, do all your phase inspections. Um, you know, if you're coming in when it's already been framed, start from the framing. Uh, framing inspection um, and go to, you know, through the, the last or the, what would be the third inspection. I can't stress that enough having, um, you know, a third party who's, because a lot of people I feel, or um, what I'm told is they don't feel confident, right? They don't feel confident. They know what to look for. So part of my job is educating them, but also relying on people who this is their job um, is, is really helpful and important. So for construction, definitely do phased inspections. Now, if you're doing a custom build, um, there are so many things you can do uh, to help prevent um, and mitigate. One, a few things would be um, having your uh, GM look at all the lumber that's being delivered and keeping it on raised palleting or platforms so it's not directly on the ground um, and then covering it. So in case it, it yes. rains, it's not getting wet. Um, I've had certain builders who will take uh, moisture meter readings on each delivery and reject um, certain uh, batches of lumber if they read too high. You know, if their inherent moisture content is too high, that's indicative of, again, being left out in the elements and not well cared for or not properly kiln dried. Um, using kiln dried wood as well is, is, is a big one. Um, and then um, even before that would actually be the, the selection of, of your, your piece of land is huge. And most people don't mm -hmm. think about that. They get really excited. They, they, wanna, they want this piece um, and don't really think about what that could mean. Um, be that the neighbors or the sloping, you know, maybe it's at the bottom of a hill. Um, what that might mean in terms of a French drain system or a drainage system that, that might cost, you know, a significant amount of money to protect the house, but that I would then recommend that if they went across the street and up two pieces, maybe they wouldn't have had to um, engineer or think out, you know, some of this drainage as much. Now, you always have to think out drainage and grading on your property, but again, depending on where it's located, um, makes a big difference. Um, so that's, that's kind of the first step. Then again, deliveries, walking your, walking your build 
can't cannot stress it enough. Um, some people aren't available to do that, meaning you know they're building in a different state or a different county, um, so they can't get to it as much. But if you can, do it. Um, you know, oversight on the build is so important. Um, often, I don't find that building uh, defects are malicious; they're just mistakes, right? Um, but you being there, asking questions, again, having a third party, like a general home inspector who's doing phased inspections, um, is huge, huge, right. huge, huge. Or having somebody like what we do, being a, being an, an owner's rep who uh, is available if you're, if, if the owner is living out of town, out of state, whatever, you know, we can kind of do those checks for them and be, be their eyes and ears on the project. I'm, I'm doing one right now that's about an hour west of Houston. People are building a vacation home, and I'm going out there on a regular basis and just monitoring the job site. So the, those types of checks, if if you can't be there, I suggest hiring somebody that can be there in addition to just the GC. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's much more I could go into there, but going to a used home or, you know, a not new to you home, um, same thing. We kind of want to start on the exterior. I rec always recommend, now again, sometimes this isn't possible, but going during a rain or directly after. Um, mm. I think that's uh, huge to see in kind of what not only the water does on the exterior, so how well the grading, sloping, and drainage is on the property, but also seeing if you see anything on the interior um, that you may have not seen if you weren't there after a rain. Again, sometimes that's not possible. Um, but I always recommend that if possible. Um, and so looking at the integrity of the siding, looking at the integrity of the roof, um, disclosures, I, I think should be, now some states are variable in terms of if a realtor can give them to you at what time. Um, but for instance, in Connecticut, like I can see every disclosure my realtor can send to me before I even review a property. So for instance, like one said they had a major sprinkler go off um, two years ago and a damp basement. So for me, not even worth seeing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot you can garner from that. Um, and it also usually gives the age of the systems, um, which is super important information. Um, how old the HVAC is, how old uh, the heater, water heater is, all of these things. Because as we mentioned at the top, every product has a life. Um, so we want to know how old these things are. And then I love asking if you can get this information again, how they were maintained. Um, so on listings, I love seeing beautifully maintained or well-maintained. That's usually a good sign um, and a good indicator that there was pride taken, you know, in taking care of the home. Um, then, you know, in the inside, always use your smell first, right? Um, you can get a lot from that and some are just an immediate turnaround no. Um, for for people who are sensitive, right? They just yeah. they just know there's something there that they're probably not going to be able to tolerate or remediate, so it's not worth it. And then looking for signs of historical water damage. So, and that's again from the bottom plane to the top plane of the uh, the interior uh, wall um, or room. So you're looking at baseboards. Is there any buckling? Um, is there any pulling away from the wall? Um, looking around windows and doors, because we know those are, you know, areas prime for water intrusion, especially again, if they're at their end of life. Um, looking for any signs of water ringing, uh, any signs of drip marks, right, on drywall, on various different surfaces. Some people go as far as taking a moisture meter with them. I, I'm in support of that um, uh, to determine, you know, if something looks wet, is it? Right, because sometimes yeah. it's not. Um, but but kind of having a tool to validate that can be helpful. Looking I'll under, say, sure. I'll say the ca the caveat on that is if if you know how to use it properly, there's and absolutely. If it's a and if it's a decent quality moisture meter, like you can get on and buy a twenty dollar moisture meter on Amazon, that's probably not worth very much. And and then especially if if you and don't gives know how to, erroneous readings, yeah. If you don't if you don't know how to use it, um, you know. The, and and then on the good ones, if you don't know how to, how to use them, the different settings and modes, and if you're testing drywall versus wood, wood. You know, the, mm -hmm. there's some differences there and and how it's utilized. Super valid point, and I just want to say that for my clients, I give them a video on how to use it if that's something that they want to do because right. 
it's exactly that. Um, you can extrapolate information that's wrong if you don't know how to properly use these tools, right? So I totally agree. Um, looking in cabinets um, and under cabinets, like you said, um, I've almost never seen in a older home not having some sort of staining, you know, on that bottom plywood in a bathroom, kitchen, or powder room cabinet. Um, it's common, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's it should be something that um, you should, if you go through with purchase, that you should not replace. In my opinion, you should. Um, but looking at behind washers, I really recommend, um, you know, just taking a peek back there using the light on your cell phone. Um, that's pretty easy to do. And again, I, if people can get up to the attic, and especially if that's where your mechanicals are, I say do it, um, especially if your uh, realtor or the seller's agent is, you know, allowing or encouraging you to do so. I, I recommend looking at everything visually that you can um, for as much information as you can. And I kind of coach clients on risk and risk management and assigning risk to these things, depending on their unique um, family's needs and their sensitivities, right? Because for some people, a... Um, a cabinet that has a little bit of water damage is fine um, in terms of their health. They can, they're robust enough to tolerate um, that potential exposure. Maybe they'll just replace it um, and they'll be fine. For other people, um, and specifically for the sensitive and sensitized, it's it's challenging. It can be challenging. Um, but there are always ways to determine and assign risk on what we're seeing visually. Um, if it's worth putting in an offer. And then what we want to confirm or look at in the inspection phase and in the options phase. Um, so I recommend also if you go through with um, putting in an offer, it's accepted, asking for the longest option period as possible. So you have as you know the maximal amount of time to determine if if and what the issues are and if it's something that you're willing to take on, um, whether that be financially or health related. Yep. And then some some visual checks on the exterior. Um, if you see a lot of water staining in one area, there's there's likely an issue there, or there's potentially an issue there. So, if if there's an an area where the where the roof is just dumping a bunch of water on one spot on the wall, and that wall is just getting hammered, then likely there's some moisture problems on the other side of that stain, unless they had really good waterproofing. Um, but on an older house, the likelihood is it's questionable waterproofing. So, um, or yeah, it's looking, broken down. So, right. It's just yeah. old. Yeah. It's beyond its, its serviceable life. Right. Um, but so any staining that you see on the outside should be a red flag or at least something worth investigating. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and we've, we've mentioned sprinkler systems being directed toward houses a couple of times now. Uh, always something good to check. Um, some other visual stuff on the outside. I mean, I, I'd say like, you know, window, window caulking is, is big. Absolutely. Um, what else? What else? What else am I missing here? Oh, gosh, there's there's so much. Um, so siding termination is really interesting too. Yes. Um, and looking first of all, you have to know what you're looking at and looking for, right? Um, but many manufacturers for specific siding uh, require a gap for you know your water plane and drainage. Um, so if you're seeing and and I've I've seen this unfortunately a lot. Um, with siding that was um, inappropriately and improperly installed, just retaining so much moisture on that um, the foundation and sill plates that then we have issues. So that's one that I I'm, I'm usually recommending uh, people look at. Like how does how does the bottom siding that's either meeting the foundation or meeting the ground look, um, and does it look like it's been installed correctly? Um, yeah, the win windows are huge. Um, and we can get into a whole side topic in terms of retrofits and what I see with that, mm -hmm. um, because that adds a whole other um, conversation piece into, again, why the house might be performing the way it is or failing in the way it is, or that we're seeing moisture issues in the way we are. And yeah. for me, what's what's really been the most important in that I found in consulting, um, especially like I told you with my client base, is they want to know why. And a lot of people are able to maybe identify what's going on, but they're not able to tell them why it's happening. And if you're not able to identify that, 
first of all, the, the risk of recurrence is high, um, but you're, you're leaving things on the table. So that's really important. Yeah. I wanted to back up. So on the siding yeah. that you meant, uh, on the siding thing that you mentioned, uh, one thing that is, is rarely done, at least here in our, in our market, um, is on siding installations with fiber cement siding, like a hardy siding, which is the most common right now. Um, that's actually supposed to have a capillary break behind it, which means that siding is not supposed to be installed flat against a wall, flat against sheathing. There's mm -hmm. supposed to be a capillary break, which means it should be installed on uh, furring strips to get it off the wall. A rain screen system yeah. is what that's called. Um, there are some uh, really good actual house wrap products out there right now. Tamlin, Tamlin has a product called the rain screen 6.3 and 10.1. Uh, that has 6.3 millimeter or 10.1 millimeter uh, uh, bubbles essentially on it that are very stiff bubbles. And you can install your siding straight to that. And that provides that capillary break and that air gap between the siding and the sheathing. Um, but even as simple as just nailing up some uh, vertical furring strips uh, to create that air gap so that if, if, not if water gets behind it, but when water gets behind it, because it's going to get back there. Mm -hmm. um, so that when water gets back there, it has the ability to drain down and to dry out. Um, you know, we always have to plan our exteriors with the assumption that water is going to get behind whatever the outside material is, whether it's brick, stone, stucco, siding, whatever. The water is going to get back there, so it's designing it so it can breathe, dry out, and not harbor mold. Exactly. Um, and again, talking about cladding, I, I unfortunately see a lot of issues with reservoir claddings and again, not having that appropriate drainage plane or not having yes. the appropriate um, weeps to get that ventilation um, in that plane to dry out. So yeah. that's important too. Now, another thing with brick um, is most people don't know that mortar also has a life, you know, and it's about 20 to 30 years. If you're lucky, depending on your climate, um, so anytime people are buying brick homes or, or I should say older brick homes, um, you know, uh, earlier than 2010, I usually say, I recommend having a brick mason come out and look at it and see if the integrity is good, especially, this is especially important if you have a chimney penetration. Mm -hmm. um, that chimney is getting, you know, a much different wind and air circulation than, you know, the four corner or the, you know, four sides of our home. Um, and is much more prone to breakdown. So getting that looked at is huge. I could, again, segue into um, chimneys and how I, I really see a lot of problems with them. So if you're in the market for a home um, and you're looking at a home with a chimney, I, I absolutely recommend a, a full and thorough inspection of that in the interior and at that exterior penetration, making sure the flashing hasn't broken down you know, around the, where, it, where it comes out of the roof, um, making sure that water's not sitting against it. Um, that's huge too. And water will break down anything eventually over time. Yeah. And, and, and chimneys are one of the most common points of water intrusion. Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, the flashing around the chimney, especially where, uh, uh, the, where the water dams up against the back of the chimney on exactly, the downslope, yeah. uh, it should have a cricket there to divert water around the chimney. So it's not just pounding that, that corner right there. Totally. Yeah, on, on old homes, you often see the mortar on the backside of a chimney uh, is very deteriorated because it's just, it's just constantly getting hammered. So exactly. great point. All right. Well, I think we are about out of time. We've been doing this for almost an hour now. So I um, can't believe it. I know. We went by quick. So uh, I appreciate you coming on, Megan. It was great to talk to you. Um, if, if our listeners want to have a virtual consultation with you, if they're uh, outside of Connecticut, uh, Connecticut, or if they're in Connecticut and they want to hook up with you, how do they reach you? For sure. So you can email me at um, the guided well. So the guided well at gmail.com, or I have an Instagram. I actually don't have a website. I've, it's truly the, the amount of interest um, and clientele that I've gotten just from having an Instagram page um, has been tremendous. Um, I am working on a website though, but you can also find me at the guided well on Instagram. Yep, and that's where I found you. So it's yeah. a great spot. You're 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 very active on there, so you're easy to easy to get to get in touch with there. That's so, right. Thank you again. Uh, I really appreciate you joining me. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Curtis. I really appreciate it. All right. And thank you all uh, listeners for joining us today on this episode of the Your Project Shepherd podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks. If you found us helpful and enjoyed listening, please support us by liking and subscribing here on your podcast platform and also join us on our YouTube channel. We want to continue to bring you high quality content and expert guests and your support truly helps us to continue this journey. If you have any questions for me or my guests or any feedback for us, you can email us at podcast at yourprojectshepherd.com. Thanks again.